Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Brian Nixon, and we are coming to another installment of something that isn't exactly in the same lane as what we've been doing with cults and solutions, but it is a massive religious movement that some of you may have heard something about. I think it's called Calvary Chapel, the Jesus Revolution. And so we wanted to touch on some things that are currently happening in our culture, because not only do we know that it's this new level of interest with a new generation, but one of us in this room had the opportunity to be much more involved in that than I have been, and is able to showcase some really important things that we believe would be of great interest to you. So today our topic is going to be the Jesus Revolution. With an emphasis on the formation and history of Calvary Chapel. Because what we're going to try to establish is some fascinating facets, facts regarding early Calvary Chapel movement. And let me just say on the offset here, Luke, that these are not just my opinion. As you kind of alluded to, I worked eight years with Pastor Chuck Smith. And within that eight years, Pastor Chuck tasked me or encouraged me to really start doing an oral history of the early Calvary Chapel movement. Um, we were playing around with doing a biography or a history book on, on it. So I was collecting stories. And I also had a copy of the original first few years of Board Minutes. Mm. So my uh, information is not hearsay. It's not, oh, I heard from this guy who knew this guy who knew, you know, his grandmother. This is from original documents, from original sources. And hopefully it sheds some light on a few things. Now, it, I just have to say this, Brian, when you say those two words, that gets someone like me really excited. Original sources, original documents. And for those of you who are listening who don't really know necessarily what those two terms entail, it means it's firsthand eyewitness access, and you literally can't get better sources than that. It's better than the movie. This is why the book is always better than the movie. That's right. That's right. And and and, and I was privileged to do so because my main um, interview, though I interviewed three early um, founders, my main person who I interviewed and got most of the information from was is now deceased. His name is Hal Fisher. But we'll get into that a little bit more. But before we do, Luke, tell us about what you did uh, this week at Calvary College. Well, Calvary College this week in the class Personal Evangelism, which is the one that I'm teaching for this semester, we started finishing up a book that was the testimony of a young woman who had come to faith and then, strangely coincidentally for some of the things we're going to talk about today, falls away and falls away into the homosexual community. Mm -hmm. And then as a Christian, is brought under deep conviction, and then she comes back to a place where she had to deliberately cut herself off from everything in that lifestyle and seek God's face until he restored her completely. Mm -hmm. And the story is one of, here's salvation, here's excitement, then there's backsliding, and then there's restoration to mm -hmm. a place of usefulness. And this was one of the main things that we showcased, and it fell right in line with the book called The Golden Path to Personal Soul Winning, which is our main textbook. It was called The Power from on High, talking particularly about the necessity, talking particularly about the necessity of the indwelling and the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit in the personal work that's done as we share the gospel. Hmm, beautiful. Interestingly enough, in my class, it too sort of has connections to Calvary, ah. Calvary Chapel in that we started Christianity in America. So we, we've left Europe for the time being and they're now focused on America. But in doing so, we started on the original text. And this is Spenner's Pia Desdaria, 
mm-hmm. which is desirous or pious thoughts. And it really, many scholars and historians believe it is the first, quote unquote, evangelical book, meaning it wasn't just denominational. He, he was critiquing denominations, but he, he goes above the denominations and, and basically lays out, here is what evangelical thought is. It, it influenced, of course, John and Charles Wesley. And of course, Calvary Chapels came, if you will, out of that Wesleyan holiness movement. Right. So it, it is, um, it's just fitting that both of ours kind of have tie-ins to today's topic. But Calvary Chapel, let, let me start here. I've already prefaced it with this is from original material. This is from original sources. It's not from a movie. It's not from Uncle Waldo who knew someone. <laughs> the, these are people I sat down with, I interviewed, looking at the original board notes. So the name, actual name Calvary Chapel was first offered in late 1961 going into 62. And Mrs. Nelson, the first pastor's wife of Calvary Chapel, offered it to Hal Fisher, asking if he liked the name. And Hal Fisher, who was the president of the board, said, yeah, I like the name Calvary Chapel. And at that point, this first named Calvary Chapel was loosely associated with the four-square denomination, though the pastor, Pastor Nelson, recently left the denomination, much like Pastor Chuck Smith is going to leave the four-square. So they they settled on a name, Calvary Chapel, offered by Pastor Nelson. By the way, his name was Floyd Nelson, who was the first pastor. Floyd Nelson's wife suggested the name. And Hal Fisher, the board president, agreed upon it. And so what they did is they were meeting in a mobile home park and they said, okay, we're, we've got a name. Let's take this seriously. They moved to the Girl Scout building in Costa Mesa, California. And they started to get some attendees, some members. And so by April 22nd, 1962, they passed a resolution to purchase property. And they they did so on Church Street. And at the time, the board members were Floyd Nelson, the pastor, E.E. E. Newman, Robert Hayes, Forrest Prine, Harold Fisher. So that, that was the board members. And then, you know, the, the church was just slowly getting off the ground. By 1963, they had left the four square completely, and they started to become associated with what was called the Pentecostal Ministries Incorporated. Just a quick note, if I may, for those of you who may not be familiar, Foursquare is typically associated with what would be a full gospel or a five-fold ministry focus in many cases. So they're moving from one more perhaps aggressive form of Pentecostalism into one that's a little more mild, it sounds like? Yeah, I mean, really what they were trying to figure out is where they fit. Because, right. I, I mean, this really, let's let's begin, let's just say it um, clearly, it's really the beginning of non-denominationalism. They're leaving True. one denomination, let's move over here, and then when when Chuck shows up on the scene, they, they pull out of all of these. Right. In 1963, you know, they're establishing themselves, they're putting together some more trustees, getting ministries going. And by December 5th, 1963, of course, these come from original board minutes from the original Calvary Chapel, 23 people came to know the Lord, 23 people um, hmm. through that ministry. Well, by 1964, this is February 5th, bylaws were discussed and they started to discuss what their statement of faith or their spiritual creed was going to be. They also note that 15 converts were made. 
There were two water baptisms, and you get the sense of problems starting to creep in by 1964 because Mrs. Nelson resigns from the board. You don't get from the board minutes that there was something amiss, but you you read between the lines. You go, okay, the pastor's wife, Mrs. Nelson, resigns from the board. And by the next year, 1965, they adopt a statement of faith, which they borrowed, by the way, from Redwood Chapel, which was in the Bay Area of California, their bylaws. And then they started to ascertain uh, lawyers to get things done legally. And then something unique happens, Luke, and this is where things change. All right. They hire an associate pastor, and his name's Chuck Smith. And that is done in no, late November into early December 1965. So let me just pause there and make sure we clarify a few untruths that have floated around for many, many years in Calvary Chapel <laughs> I circles. Love it. Number one, Chuck Smith was not the first pastor of Calvary Chapel. He was not. The first pastor was Floyd Nelson of Calvary Chapel. Number two is that Pastor Chuck Smith founded the Calvary Chapel movement. That is not necessarily true either. The founders, if you will, were Hal Fisher and the board of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, who founded this platform that Pastor Chuck eventually, you know, adopted and ran with. And one note on that, Brian, not to comment on the historical side, but for those of you who may not be familiar with what it looks like for the formation of a church, once you've decided on a name, you need a statement of faith and bylaws to do what is called incorporations. Right. And it's where you choose and really create a legitimate legal entity yeah. that you can use as the church. So when Brian's talking about the founding, he's not necessarily talking about the spiritual aspect of the church and what it became under Chuck, as much as he's saying the entity known as Calvary Chapel, that entity was not founded by Chuck Smith, but it was one into which he stepped. That's exactly right. And I could go into a lot of history about Pastor Chuck, what had happened prior to him coming on as an associate pastor. He had had, you know, senior pastors in both California and Tucson, Arizona. Some of them flail. They weren't very successful. He had a stint as a grocery store clerk, and his ministry was was one of hit and miss, believe it or not, in the Foursquare denomination. So when he was hired as an associate pastor at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, he was already a man in his 40s. Erase from your head this young buck entrepreneur who, you know, had a vision. He, in a way, and you can listen to Chuck, and Chuck has told me in, on many occasions himself personally that he saw this kind of as a second chance, that maybe the Lord wasn't finished with him, and he was coming for all intents and purposes as a middle-aged man yeah. to take over a new ministry. Well, Chuck's presence obviously created some consternation with Floyd Nelson. Why? Because Floyd Nelson resigns shortly after Pastor Chuck comes on. Mm. And we don't know if they knew each other from Foursquare days. We don't know what the deal was. But Chuck Smith then takes over the pastorate. He's no longer the associate. By 1966, Pastor Chuck Smith is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And mind you, that is four years after the founding of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. So still very early. Still very early. But again, not the founding pastor. So after Chuck takes over and they start moving around a little bit, they were at the Girl Scout place. They were, they were on the corner of Sunflower and Greenville. And then they finally purchase a school. 
an old school, and they start meeting. And it was that 1966-1967 time frame where things started to get a little bit interesting because culturally speaking, there was a cultural phenomenon, hippies, right? the rock and roll, moving towards the summer of love. So there was a lot of things transpiring, and, and we talked about Jesus Revolution, you know, the new right. movie out. And this is a little bit before that time frame, but what happens is Chuck starts to get a second breath in his lungs. And in 1968, Calvary Chapel starts to grow, and Chuck finds that some of the main people who were coming to the church in 68 were hippies of Orange County. And what's interesting, and Chuck has told me this, I've talked with Kay about this, I've talked with all the early people, Chuck was not necessarily originally too fond of the hippies. It was kind <laughs> of cut your hair, get a job, get things right. But it was Kay and their daughter Jan who really wanted to reach out to the hippies because Jan was, you know, she had hippie friends. And so they started inviting hippies to the church. And and again, I haven't seen Jesus Revolution. I know, I know, Luke, I'm hearing the, <laughs> oh my goodness, and oohs and ahs. I, I could hear it, but I'm going to see it one day. But I do know for a fact that it was during this time when Lonnie Frisbee came on the scene. And, you know, the rest, if you will, is history at that point, at least right. as far as the movie's concerned. But really, before Lonnie came up, Kay actually had a semi-vision of sorts, a, you know, epiphany, where she saw a young hippie girl with, quote-unquote, a full, long dress staggering down the street. And it was at that moment the Lord placed on her heart that we really need to reach this group. And her passion, Kay Smith's passion, and Jan, and then later Chuck Jr. and Jeff and Cheryl. Cheryl was just a baby at this time. So what's what's interesting, and I've been told this by multiple people, they actually show one child of, right. of Chuck and Kay. They actually at this time had Jan, uh, Chuck Jr., Jeff, who was still fairly young, but, you know, old enough to remember all this, and Cheryl, who was who was really young. But there was four children. But it was birthed through Kay and Jan's friendship with a lot of these people. So by 1969, Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, with all of these hippies coming in, they rent a two-bedroom house in Costa Mesa that the hippies who were attending the church could stay. And what happened is, of course, with Lonnie Frisbee and all these other hippies who were starting to join the fold, revival broke out. You know, there was, there was, for all intents and purposes, communes right. that, that started to sprout up, and these hippies were starting to be reached. This revival exploded. Houses were, were popping up all over. These houses would then come to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, because that these hippies were staying all around, but then they found this church where they accepted. And then Obviously, the music started, everything right. that, that coincided with this. So during that 1969-70, a new style of music was introduced, Christian rock, you know, if you will, or Christian praise and worship. Larry Norman, I think. Uh, uh, all of that. So yeah. what, what, what is now known contemporary Christian music, CCM, started there. Kay, in, in speaking with her one time, she remembers when, because she was with Chuck at the time, when a group of young musicians uh, approached Pastor Chuck, and, and this is what she told me. They said, dude, can we play? <laughs> so they, they approached Pastor Chuck Smith and said, dude, can we play? And of course, I, I think 
it may have been Love Song or one of these early, early um, bands that, that were there. A lot of bands, by the way, came out. Mustard Seed Faith, Love Song, as you said, Larry Norman was loosely affiliated. Keith Green was more vineyard later on, but there, there was a lot of these guys floating around during that time. So by the time 70 and 71 approach, thousands of young people were starting to flood to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And as you could imagine, they can't fit all of them in, in the right. building that's going on. There was praise and worship. There was this new music of contemporary Christian music that was started. And Pastor Chuck really started to hone in on what we now know as expository teaching, his verse by verse going through the Bible, which he didn't pull from his days at the Foursquare. He got it from a Bible handbook. I'll quiz you, Luke. Do you know what Bible handbook? Probably Haley's Bible That's Handbook. That's exactly that right. He 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 looked at Haley's Bible Handbook and he said, boy, how, how should we be doing all of this? And so it was Haley's Bible Handbook that gave him direction on how to do it. So his main problem was, where do we put all these people? And then in 1971 into 72, the church purchased the 11 acres on the corner of Sunflower and Fairview, which is where I worked for, for many years. A tent was pitched and services began. And of course, over the course of the next year and a half, while the building was being built, this was the hub of what we know the Jesus movement, celebrated in the movie and all of this. And literally thousands of people were coming to know the Lord. Baptisms at Pirate's Cove that you see right. there in pictures. That was all occurring at this time. So the beach was packed. Then they began Friday evening concerts that brought people from all over Southern California to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa to hear this Christian rock and roll. And the revival kept going on. And then finally in 1973, a new sanctuary was opened that sat 2,300 people, which was massive for the day, still is the same sanctuary that there is now. And after five weeks of services, the service attendance tripled. The, the rest, if you will, is history. Just some brief things that, that transpired after that. They bought uh, Twin Peaks Conference Center in 75, where they started the Calvary Chapel Bible College. They bought uh, Castle in Austria, where they started to train people in Europe. They bought Green Valley Youth Camp. Uh, Myriad of Hot Springs was purchased in May of 1995. And the list goes on and on and on. And the ministry just exploded. Of course, radio um, stations were purchased. Ministry through, at the time, cassette tapes was done. So Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was very innovative on many levels. And, and I won't get into more history because by 1973, when the church was complete, the Jesus people revolution really was still in full swing. And I, I firmly believe, I think some scholars said, well, by 73, it had, it had wind down. I, I really don't think so. I think it kept momentum until about 77. And then after 77, it kind of not tapered off, but it got a little bit more conservative. I would say Chuck entered in his more conservative conservative phase that he went back uh, late 70s, early 80s into what I would call a more Baptist type framework, or even I'll use this word, not very fond in, in some Calvary circles, but a more liturgical. You know, Chuck, believe it or not, was very structured in his worship. You go to most Calvary chapels today and you just think loud music and praise and worship and then expository teaching. But Chuck was not that way. He came out, he opened in a hymn, a literal hymn, and I helped put together a hymn book while I was there with Pastor Chuck. And the song leader, yes, it was me for about a year, <laughs> I came out and I led the hymn to the people. Then Chuck would come up and he would do responsive reading. I 
you know, we'll read the first verse and you will read the second. And we'll, they did responsive reading. And then you have the quote unquote praise and worship time. But you have to sit down during that time because Chuck didn't like any attention being drawn to individuals. The focus should always be on the Lord. So, so it was more conservative. It was more traditional. You open with the hymn, then, then you do responsive reading. People stood up during the responsive reading. Then you sat down during praise and worship. And then you had special music. And the special music was arranged by different people from different times. But it was always mellow. Chuck never wanted it to be too crazy because he always thought the attention needs to be on the Lord. And then he would come up and give his, his message. And then he would do his benediction and so on and so forth. So considering most Calvary chapels to this day, Chuck was very, very traditional, very conservative. So the idea of, you know, people bouncing off walls and all of that, <laughs> that, that they get in their mind of how Calvary Costa Mesa must have been is really not accurate. In the early days with the Jesus people, there definitely was more excitement going on. But Chuck obviously relegated that to Friday nights or different nights of the week and let them go do that. But Sunday mornings was still fairly traditional. And we still had organ. You know, organs were played. There was pre-music service. And um, I actually, you know, the eight years that I worked with Chuck, um, I, I hosted a daily radio broadcast with him called Pastor's Perspective. It originally was to every man an answer, but then it changed to Pastor's Perspective. And I also oversaw the writing of his books. And so I, I was, if you will, the general editor for his last books. That was a blast, including his, his memoir, where he was able to go through and remember some of these things. And some other unique things where where we were trying to tie some beautiful bows on certain things. So it was a privilege. But let me just say this in conclusion of the history lesson. I've asked Chuck a number of times to give me insight into the people he met and some of his heroes and individuals. And some of his responses would blow your mind. But we don't have time to get into them all. But one thing I do want to say is I asked Chuck, Chuck, honestly, tell me what it was like during this let's say 68 to 73 time frame, this five-year period when, when Calvary Chapel exploded. And he just looked down as he would and sometimes scratch his hand or he'd have almond nuts in his hand or something of that nature. And he just kind of looked pensive and he said, Brian, he was dead serious. He goes, I felt like I was in the stands watching the Lord move. Had nothing to do with me. It was all the Lord. I was in the stands watching him work. And I thought that was beautiful. And it still stands as a testimony to not only the character of Pastor Chuck, because character mattered to Pastor Chuck. He never wanted to live over people. He, he wanted to really instill with the pastors that were being brought up. Guys, don't live above your sheep. Don't, don't live like rock stars. L- live simply. Live, live as, as an example uh, to the flock. Mm. But I love that because really, Luke, he was a middle-aged man. A bald, getting a little bit heavy, middle-aged man who came on the scene and was just available to, to the Lord and saying, here I am, Lord, use me in whatever way. And Chuck would always say, there was two things I wanted in the early ministry. I wanted the best loved and the best taught congregation. That was it. Th- those were my goals. I had, no, I had no big ambitions. I had no 10-step plan towards church success. I didn't, I didn't want a mega church. All I wanted was the best loved and the best taught people I could possibly get. Again, because he's a middle-aged man. He, he's not coming as a 25-year-old whippersnapper. He kind of 
played that part for a while and didn't find a lot of success until he just said, Lord, I just want to love the people and teach them and I'll let you do the rest of the work. And that's what the Lord did. So that is it. But, you know, we do have to get into, Luke, uh, a sensitive topic. And I know you've done some research because I mentioned Lonnie Frisbee. And um, I understand that the movie uh, Jesus Revolution does highlight Lonnie Frisbee, and it's played by the actor who plays Jesus in The Chosen. Jonathan Rumi, I believe. Okay, yeah, I'm not sure, I'm not familiar with his name, but I know he plays Lonnie Frisbee. And for our listeners, it is true that Lonnie Frisbee, after he had left Calvary Chapels and had a short stint with Vineyards, he apparently did get into the gay lifestyle and he did die of AIDS. And so he's a controversial figure. Yes. Um, I mean, for, for all intents and purposes, he's someone that on two sides of the aisle, if you will, some will celebrate what how he was used in, in the Jesus People movement, and the other people will berate, you right. know, how he was used in the, the Jesus People movement. But, but I, and I do know that there's been um, documentaries and other things, you know, about Lonnie Friss. But what have you discovered, Luke? So I, I love how you introduced that. I love that we have some very clear facts on the table about the origins of Calvary Chapel and what we are currently able to enjoy now because of the dedication of those early folks. But as with many folks who were involved in the beginning of movements, depending on the type of movement, Chuck Smith really stands apart as an unusual character because he's not this bombastic, charismatic, and by charismatic, I mean sort of enthusiastically charismatic, personality. Now, he had great gravitas when you're around him. He was a very warm, incandescent personality from what I can understand. And that's far different than what you would consider someone like Lonnie to be. So Lonnie is actually credited with being a spark in both the expansion of Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard Movement with a gentleman by the name of John Wimber. Wimber. Mm-hmm. And who was also a Calvary Chapel pastor at yeah, the time. Yeah, who came out from John Wimber, actually. His early childhood was in Quaker Friends. He was a, a, a friend, then later affiliated with Calvary Chapel. And then he really wanted to get back to the spiritual gifts and the movement of the spirit, which, you know, was even though Quakerism isn't Pentecostal, it's very spirit-oriented. Right. And so they had a meeting with these early Calvary leaders, and John Wimber said, I'm going to go do this, and he founded Vineyard. But anyway, that's just a little history on that. No, that's, it's, it's excellent. And so it appears that while Lonnie was involved at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, he had received an invitation from another ministry, which presumably was Wimber's church, and he had left Calvary for a period of time, which was around four years from what we can mm-hmm. understand. Now, this was during the expansion time. The expansion continued after Lonnie had taken her departure and moved over to this other ministry. And then Lonnie initiated a call, came back to Calvary. Chuck opened his arms, welcomed him back in. Chuck did for a lot of people, by the way. He Chuck was very gracious. You know, one of his his classic books, Why Grace Changes Everything. He truly lived a grace filled life. And but they said when Lonnie came back, something was different. He was not the same as he had been when he'd left. He'd gone far more into what we would consider radical Pentecostalism. Some some would say the difference between charismaticism and charismania. I think there was a book that was written about that. Charisma versus charismania by Pastor Chuck, now called Power, by the way. Interesting. I didn't know it had gone through a title change. 
But that differentiation there is the moving of the Holy Spirit and then sometimes the sensationalism that can accompany that, Mm -hmm. which was, as you mentioned, Chuck was very much about this is to be low-key as far as humans are concerned so that God can receive the glory. And there was something in this other movement that was clearly not of that ill. There was a difference in methodology. There was a difference in how this happened. And so they eventually part ways again. Mm -hmm. Although we're aware of this in Lonnie's practice, he ends up divorcing his wife Mm -hmm. and he ends up, people start coming forward that are aware of Lonnie's failings Mm -hmm. morally. And that ended up tending into the homosexual category. Now, according to the testimony of his ex-wife, he had been saved out of homosexuality Mm -hmm. and he had stated that you know, he'd repudiated that, but then he began to experience problems with that after the fact. So it re- he basically was relapsing, not that he'd lost his salvation, but that he was beginning to relapse. Mm-hmm. So the reason why we bring this up is not to try to post-mortem poke holes in somebody who was clearly used by God early on in both of these movements. That doesn't take away from that. But what we are wanting to do in bringing this up is to get in front of this cultural drift that's trying to idolize people who are in moral juxtaposition to the teaching of the word of God as if they are the new prophets of the new age to usher in a new movement of God specifically because they challenge traditional morality. Traditional morality is not something that, you know, a group of Anglo-Saxon Protestants dreamed up. It literally comes from the scripture and it's not a cultural construct by which we try to gain power. It's not a colonial construct. It is a biblical one. And as a result of that, we don't want to see the incredible history of the backstory that's captured in the Jesus Revolution film be hijacked by an internal truth that may not be fully fleshed out. And that is this. God uses sinners because we're all sinners. Even if we've been saved, we're sinners. And we all know exactly what that portent is in our lives. But that doesn't mean that God's usage of us ever condones the sins with which we struggle. And quite frankly, even though God may graciously use us while we are struggling with sin, he certainly never blesses the sin with which we struggle or condone it. Mm. What that does mean is that we are going to be limited in God's usage of us by our sin. The scriptures teach this. No matter how much we might be able to be used, it is not as much as we could be used And ultimately, as Paul said, I keep my body under subjection, lest after I have preached unto others, I myself become a castaway, someone who's put on the shelf because they have become a moral anchor, not in a good way, to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So true. So true. Luke, that that was great insight. And, And let me just say something. I didn't know Lonnie, obviously. I came to Costa Mesa much, much later, you know, it was in Chuck's um, twilight years. And I had heard stories. I I knew people who met Lonnie and worked with Lonnie and were friends with Lonnie. And I know someone like Greg Laurie was friends with Lonnie and has much more greater insight into his person, his personality, his strengths, his weaknesses. So I'd encourage our listeners to, you know, to listen to Greg Laurie and others who knew Lonnie and, and could really you know, get into his head, but you are spot on on that is, and really it comes back to something we just alluded to a little while ago. It's about God's grace. God, right. God, uh, you know, God loves Lonnie. God, God, God loves everyone. And he may not love the sin, you know, and, and what's happening, but he, he allowed Lonnie to be used as he was used, but the Lord loved Lonnie to the end. 
and the Lord loved Chuck, and Chuck had flaws and foibles as well. And you right. know, we don't have time, to, and I neither would I share right. any of this on air. But but the point is, the whole Calvary Chapel movement was, in a way, a, a movement of grace. It was a movement of God using imperfect people right. for His plans and purposes. And I know that when I showed up on the scene much, much later and started to collect this information from early board members, from Paul's brother, I mean, from Chuck's brother, Paul Smith and others, I, I just really sat back and said, you know what, Lord, this really was a work of grace. It, it, it was a work of using men and women who in of their own power may not have been the slickest or may not have been the smartest, but you still chose to use them because really they were available. They were open. They were individuals who said, Lord, here I am, send me, use me. And that's why, and I think maybe, you know, it could be pushed a little bit, but we romanticize that that early, right. that time frame, oh, the first generation. And you hear all these guys talking about the first generation. And then you have the end of the first generation to the second generation, which was like the skips and and others. And and they were they were at the, the part of, you know, that that Jesus, but they were they were moving it towards there. And then you had guys like me who were like the third generation coming on and were starting to collect information and get to the facts and dig down deep of what really happened and what transpired. But through all of this. I don't care what generation, it was a work of grace. And it was God just allowing his spirit to move through people and to proclaim his love in the world. So again, Lonnie Frisbee, controversial. I love how you articulated it. And I would encourage people to just investigate and, and learn more about him. Now, concerning Chuck Smith, Chuck Smith, we did do memoirs. Chuck didn't want an autobiography. We chose not to write a history of Calvary Chapel um, in detail, even though I kind of outlined it and so on and so forth. So I'd encourage people to to read Chuck Smith. I would also encourage people to check out Chuck Jr. Chuck Jr., who was there during all of this time, had great insight and great, uh, beautiful things to say about his father. One of my favorite books, by the way, that I worked on, you know, everyone goes, well, Brian, you know, you kind of put together Final Act. That was one of Chuck's great big sellers. And I go, yeah, yeah, it was It was a fun book. It wasn't my favorite. My favorite was the Gospel of John. Mm. And the Gospel of John, we took an old track by the artist Rick Griffin, who was a surf artist who turned, you know, fine artist, became a Christian during the Jesus People movement, and then was hired by Costa Mesa to do artwork for this track. Well, we later took those that artwork and put it in book form called The Gospel of John. But what I love is Pastor Chuck just narrates kind of in, in his Chuck-isms, The <laughs> Gospel of John, and then we included artwork. And Chuck Smith Jr. wrote kind of a, a little survey of his father and the impact of that early movement. And Greg Luria had Greg actually write the introduction to it. So Greg and Chuck are there. And then my friend, the art historian and friend of uh, Rick Griffin and one of the guys part of the whole Jesus movement, his name is Gordon McClelland, also wrote some aspects. So I would encourage people to get the book on Chuck, the autobiography of or, or the memoirs of Chuck. You could get some other information on Lonnie, but definitely get Gospel of John. 
where Chuck Smith Jr., Greg Laurie, and Gordon McClellan kind of talk about, you know, some of these things as well. And there's some uh, other scholarly books out there as well that talk about the rise of the Jesus movement beginning in the Haight-Nashbury area and kind of exploding down in Costa Mesa. So when you talk about the Jesus revolution as a big picture, Luke, it didn't just necessarily happen in Costa Mesa, California. Actually, if you really want, the, the infancy of it started in San Francisco and then somehow blossomed in um, Southern California, but definitely a, a Southern California phenomenon early on, but went to Chicago, went to New York, went around really the world. It's a great history. And I love talking to somebody who's got the opportunity to have tapped into those original moments. And that's something special. I know we normally invite in a special guest to be able to get the background on certain things, but today our co-host is our special guest because he was there, been there, and it's a very good scoop. One of the things I just want to close with is as we talk about these moves of God, the church, and I'm not just talking about Calvary Church, but the church often has a tendency to be more interested in building memorials about how good the old days were, Mm -hmm. not realizing that God is not limited by generations. There's not something special that we have to do for us to make a special opening for God in this generation that no one else has ever done before. We get caught up on thinking, well, who does the church need to open their doors to right now that we're not opening our doors to? We think that's going to be the thing that initiates the move of God. But as you pointed out, Brian, it was about the available people. And I don't remember who said this, but it said the greatest ability is availability, Mm -hmm. particularly talking about moves of God. I would encourage those of you who are listening, you don't need to go somewhere to try to find a move of God. You don't have to do something special for God to pay attention to you. You have to take your life and pay more attention to God yourself. Instead of trying to figure out what does the culture need this, what do I need right now in my personal relationship with Jesus Christ? How much more of me does God need to have in order for him to start moving in my life? Because corporate moves of God are inevitably the macrocosm of the microcosm that's happening inside the lives of individual dedicated believers who as parts of the body project the power and the manifestation of the spirit into the lives of their brothers and sisters. And then suddenly that quote revival, which is just living the normal Christian life, the life of Christ in us being lived out begins to affect the community. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the love that everybody says, this ought to be what Christians love. It's there. You don't need a group or a particular section of population to come in and tell you, this is how you need to love us. You know this because it is the Spirit of God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so it's not that the church needs to be more open to tolerating the sins of particular individuals, but that individuals, starting with the church, must be more open to a genuine repentance of sin and a pursuit of personal holiness and purity so that God can have a pure vessel, a clean vessel, broken though we are, through which his light can shine. Amen to that. Luke, that was so good. And I think it kind of reflects Pastor Chuck's heart. I could say that just because, you know, he has said similar things. And I think it's a great way to end today's broadcast. We encourage our listeners to share this, particularly during the popularity of the Jesus Revolution movie, to share this podcast with individuals about 
really what the documents show about the formation of early Calvary Chapel, but knowing that it is just people surrendering their lives to the Lord and saying, here I am, Lord, use me. Excellent. Thanks so much for that information, Brian. For those of you who have been listening, thank you for listening. And until next time, God bless.